Gilo Logan. One of the many things I love about being part of the stories we are telling through Evanston Rules is that we have been lucky enough to speak to different generations from the same family. And Gilo is part of a five generations deep and abiding history in Evanston. He is following in the steps of those who came before him, but also forging his own path to do the work necessary to make Evanston a place that doesn't just strive to be better, but is better. Gilo speaks to us about growing up, his soul-searching travels, and how what was to be a short trip became a months-long quest to find himself. We talk about what and who came before us, and as Gilo says, I am because we are, and because we are, therefore I am. The wonderful thing about telling these stories and the history of Evanston and the legacies are the generations. And though many of the stories remain the same, there are pieces that are very different. And though you are your father's son, and there's a glory in that, you are also Gilo. And I think that now that I'm a parent, my hope is always that my children learn more and do better than I do, or have. Mm -hmm. You are on a path to doing what is right for you, not just being your father's son. And I don't mean that as really ju- a just because that's a wonderful thing. Larry mm-hmm. says, you, you got to get Ryan to realize that he's, he still calls him Bill Logan's son. <laughs> <laughs> now nah, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you got jokes, man. <laughs> you are. <laughs> got to get through the pain, man. Got to get through the pain. Right. You, you are. You, you are, man. And that's... And that's, I'm, st- I'm still John Whitmore's son, man. Right, and that's <laughs> still Margie's son, without question. Right. Always. You, know, you talk a lot about the ancestors, man. We have to continue to speak their names while they're here and while they're gone. Yeah, that's right. right? G-Lo, is, yeah. who was Gary Logan? Okay, first, I'm still figuring that out. But I can tell you to the best of my knowledge, Gary Logan was young Evanstonian born from Chief Logan, being Chief Logan's son, Marsha Logan's son, ancestors that came escaping the lynchings in South Carolina on my father's side, ancestors that came from Canada who escaped on the Underground Railroad to Canada on my mom's side. And I was born into Evanston. So Gary Logan was this middle-class suburbanite Good little boy, trying to do everything right, living by the rules, playing the game as I was told to play it. And uh, as a result of that, and I think being overshadowed by being Chief Logan's son and Billy Logan's little brother, Gary Logan was lost. He was a lost little boy. I mean, he was a good athlete. He was relatively good looking, (laughs) popular, and uh, no one knew but myself. But, you know, that, that brother was lost as well in terms of, what it meant to be Gary Logan, what it meant to be a black boy in America. So for me, the transformation, when I was in third grade, actually, I was nicknamed G-Lo by George Dotson. So G for Gary, Low for Logan. So from Sweet Low to G-Lo to when I was traveling and I was overseas in New Zealand, and actually with the Maori people, the indigenous people there, I was being welcomed into the village and I was being asked to introduce myself and represent my people, basically 30 plus million of us. And as I got up there, I introduced myself as Gary Logan from Evanston and then I sat down. They introduced themselves by their name, their culture, the name of their tree, the name of their flower, the name of their river, the name of their mountain, the name of the 
the canoe that the 25th ancestor came on. And I couldn't offer that. And as I got up to try to explain myself, I broke down and cried because I, I, I was lost for how to introduce myself from a cultural context. And the brother that was welcoming me into the village pulled me to the side thereafter. And he talked to me about my name. And he said, uh, he said, so what's your name, Gary? He said, what does that mean? I said, I don't really know. He said, why were you named that? Not sure. He said, you ever called any, any other names by your people, by your community? I told him about G. Lo. He said, why don't you embrace that as your name? He said, that's a nickname. He said, no, that, that's what Europeans call it. He said, if your people gave you that name and it was born out of your experience, you have the right to claim that for yourself. So what I ended up doing, and, I, and traveling and living with indigenous people of the world, I saw the power of a name, right? So what I did is I added an I to it. So it's a G-I-L-O, G-L-O, and the I represented I, the individual, I, the individual on what I call the inward journey, and the I represented the indigenous people of the world who gave me a sense of myself as an African-American. So that's when I went from being black to being African-American. I was in New Zealand. So that's where G-Lo came from. Kwesi is, I'm born on Sunday in West Africa where I lived for a couple of years. You're in the Western world, the, the, the cosmology is your star sign. So I'm a Gemini from that standpoint. But they don't go by the month you're born. They go by the day of the week you're born. Because the notion is there's seven days to creation. So there's seven principles of creation. And depending on what day you're born on, you embody that principle. And that's part of the stamp of your destiny into the world. So I was born, and it's a masculine and feminine for each name, for each day. So I was born on Sunday. So Sunday is Kwesi or Kwesi. And the female would be Essie or Isi. So it's a version of that. And so Sunday born, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of the sun, and that being the first day of the week, you're born to be a leader. You're born to bring light to darkness. You're born to create a pathway for others to follow. So that's something that I'm still working to do. So that's my abbreviated version of that. And can I add, just yes, sir. To, for clarification, I never lost the name Gary. People apologize for calling me Gary. Like, hey, oh, I'm sorry, what's your name? Guy Lowe or G Lowe or... You know what? I never lost Gary Logan. That's me, man. I, 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 that's who I am, right? So we're more than just a singular notion. So I, I embrace that. People who call me Gary, I have no problem with that at all. The way I look at it is I just acquired new names as opposed to having lost one. What made you decide to go see the world? In essence, I was seeking for my own humanity. I was seeking for my identity as a man as a black person, because I had reached a point in my life where I realized that which I had bought into and that which I had been socialized by was not the answer. And I knew a lot of the things that I didn't want in life. You know, I went to SIU in Carbondale and I was earning this business degree in business marketing. And But by the time I was about to graduate, I didn't want to pursue business. I didn't want to work in that environment. I didn't want to have to wear a suit and tie every day. I didn't want to be the only black person or one of just a few. I, 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 my classmates, I said, if I'm not getting along with my classmates who were all white, how can I work for a career in that type of environment and not lose myself? Yep. And I, I wasn't willing to do that. And I felt that I was being set up to have a fat wallet and an empty heart and soul. Mm. And as I looked within myself, 
I realized, again, there was a whole lot that was lacking. But, but again, on the exterior, Chief Logan's son, football player, college graduate, I mean, all that was there. I'm not trying to overplay the negativities, but there was just a reality that I went to bed with every night. And what really exacerbated that was when I was in my last semester, my last year of college, long story short, I was writing a paper for my international marketing class and I chose apartheid as like my thesis, if you will. So all of my colleagues chose, my, my peers chose all these Fortune 500 companies and all these typical marketing things. And I talked about how the American government and our economical leverage was the backbone to the apartheid system in South Africa. And yet on the cover, on the front, overtly, we were speaking against apartheid, but yet covertly, we were the engine behind it. And I was calling that out in my essay. And essentially, I had my professor who, now, now granted, I put myself in a situation where I needed an A out of this class to graduate with a 2.0 grade point average. And despite all the work that I did and all the extra credit and this assignment required at least 12 pages, I did 27 pages. And I, I did everything above and beyond. And he gave me an 89%, one point away from that A. Mm. And when I contested my grade, essentially he called me into his, his office and accused me of plagiarism. And he told me in so many words that he didn't believe I, I produced that work. So basically he was telling me I, I wasn't intelligent enough to do the work that I did. I was trying to pull out my drafts and essays and my books. He's like, no, that's fine. But I didn't have the, 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 the cultural capital to know how the institution works. I didn't know what a dean was or what, a provost. What color was your professor? <laughs> he, 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 he was white. Yeah, he, he was white. It was an international marketing class. And I always, every day in class, we debated because international marketing, I, I felt I was being groomed to exploit people of color internationally, to go to all these third world countries, exploit their resources, exploit their culture, exploit the people for capital gain. So by the time I'm in this professor's office, we already had a whole semesters of run-ins with and, one and, another. I still have my essay to this day. So for that context, you went above and beyond, regardless of the antics or the shenanigans that every college student has, you went above and beyond the call as per the requirements of that paper. Yeah, and okay. per the requirements of the class. I never missed a class. I sat in front. My father always told me, participate every day, even if you just raised your hand one time and asked a question. I did the extra credit. I mean, I did all the work. I went above and beyond. And part of my perhaps mistake was on the first day of class, I told the professor I needed that A in order to graduate from college. Uh-huh. And but I so he knew you. what he was doing and he knew the outcome. And regardless, of course, I understand you're a young adult, you're in college, you come from privilege. But where was the support? Where was the support? Was there anyone that looked like you that could offer you support? Very, what if very, you would have been? What if you would have been white? I didn't ask that yet, but yeah, I think it would have been a different situation. Well, first of all, if I had been white, or I'll say I'll answer it this way: because I was not white, when it came time to like study groups, when it came time to like get together on Friday night, have a beer, and let's review for the test, I was always excluded from all of that. When it came time to one of the white fraternity members got hold of a test from that class and they're passing it down to their classmates, I was excluded from that. So I was marginalized, I was largely invisible. 
And I, so there was that aspect of it, even amongst my classmates, even before we get to the professor, that had I been white, I'm, I'm assuming I would have been more in on those things than what I was. I was largely excluded because I was the only black, not only the only person of color, I was typically the only black person and person of color in all of my classes. So to answer your question, once I wanted to contest my grade and I'm sitting there before the professor and I asked to speak to the chairman of the marketing department. I knew that much, but he was the chairman. And once I knew that, as I was saying before, I didn't know the, the, the provost and the dean or VP of student affairs. I, that was, I, I didn't have that vernacular. So I walked up, I, I stood up and I contemplated first whooping his ass. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, but you know what? If I do that, my father always taught me, be careful of the traps they lay for you because then you play into the stereotypes. And I knew he would have won the war, see? So I would have been the one handcuffed, dragged out of the school, front page of the newspaper, the angry black man. I would have been the one not graduating. So I said, no, then I contemplated just standing up and just pulling down all the plaques and accolades and trophies and flipping this bookcase and just and calling the police and be like, yep, I did it. I said, I filed a lawsuit. I didn't know what to do. So I, I fell back on the words of my father, actually, who always shared with me the words that he learned from Dr. King. And it was actually in that moment, as I'm sitting there to stare down with this man, not only did my father teach me about the, the traps that they will lay for you, but he also talked about what Dr. King taught him. And that is, he told my father, he said, Bill, you got to have faith. You got to have faith in yourself. And your education is going to be the key to your future. But nobody's going to just give you anything. You're going to have to earn it. And I remembered that. So what I did is I stood up. I gathered all my things. I actually walked over to him. I shook his hand. I said, thank you very much. I turned around. I had buckets this big up under my eyes to capture all the tears. I refused to allow this man to see me cry. And I walked out of there and the tears just fled down. I went home to my apartment. I screamed. I cried. And I just wallowed in my embarrassment because graduation was the very next day. And my parents were already on their way down. My brother, my sister, my grandparents, my aunt, they were already coming down. And I actually, they talked me into going through the graduation ceremony, even though I wasn't graduating on time. So I went through the ceremony. I had to take another class, intermission, three hours every day for three weeks. Had to get an A. I had a 93% going into the final exam. The professor walks in, gets on the microphone. He said, over the weekend, somebody got into my office and stole the exam. And because of that psychological baggage that I was carrying as a young black boy, I just, out of a room of 250 people, I just felt a spotlight on me, like, and I just felt like he was accusing me of, I mean, he wasn't even looking at me, mm -hmm. but I just felt like he was accusing me of stealing the exam. He said, you know what? I changed the test and I hope everybody's ready. Good luck. That was the hardest test I ever took in my life. Ended up getting an 88, not graduating. So then I came back home for the summer, wanted to quit. My parents told me to stick with it. I took a class at Northeastern Illinois University where I worked two jobs. I saved the money. At the end of the summer, I packed my bags and I took off traveling around the world for what I thought was going to be two weeks. And I ended up being gone for 16 months. So specifically to answer your question, what led me to go traveling 
was escaping my own discord, my own confusion. I was on a soul searching journey, seeking for my soul, for my identity, my humanity. And I was seeking for something more than what I was exposed to. And also I was exposed to travel from white folks growing up in Evanston. Spring break, they were the ones going to the Alps and skiing in Colorado and coming home with the suntans while we going over to Mason Park playing basketball, riding our bikes downtown Evanston. They come home wearing white t-shirts to accentuate the suntan. And I saw that, I was always like, wait a minute, if they doing it, I can do it too. So I had some white friends who wanted to go travel as well. And we ended up, four of us, three of them and myself, we ended up traveling together my first time. Um, um, you talked about an evolution. You talked about finding yourself and taking on a name to represent who you are. If you could express the inner feeling that you had on this journey to have your name represent who you are. I would say that I was suffering from cognitive dissonance in the Western world's way mm. of saying it. W.E.B. Du Bois or Du Bois back in 1903, he talked about the dilemma of the double consciousness. Woo! That, <laughs> Wait, slow down, slow down. <laughs> the dilemma of the double consciousness, right? So again, and whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're orange, whether you're brown, the whole notion of the double consciousness is real and is something that black folk have been dealing with 400 years. So please unpack that for our listeners as you go into your evolution. Okay, let me just, if, if I can use his own words to describe it, I'm gonna quote him. So what the boy said was, he said the Negro, because that was the term that was used then. The Negro is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world. A world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, the sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity, or over ever feeling his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideas in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. So that's in his words, the dilemma of the double consciousness. And just to paraphrase it very briefly, being both African and American in America, and we have to learn how to code switch and navigate different worlds and how to reintegrate and not lose our sense of self. And I, I, as again, as a young black boy growing up in suburban America, I struggled with that. I was almost consumed by white privilege. And I'm not white. What many of us don't realize is white privilege, one of the ways it almost took my life 
is the the sense of identity as a black boy. I was lost and confused. Another sense of that, when high school, drugs and alcohol and all that stuff, I was exposed to that through white folks. Now, black folks was, you know, smoking a little weed here and there, but all these extravagant drugs, I was exposed to that through white folks. That's another thing that almost took me out. And that comes from white privilege. So growing up, trying to navigate both worlds brings about a sense of confusion. And I would say, in short, that sense of dilemma, the, the, the dilemma of the double consciousness, going through that process of identity development, it was no longer a dilemma anymore. The dilemma was resolved. That's the sense that it brings to answer your question. So what I'm hearing is it's in the water. And when we're forced as a people to bend another way, I was having a conversation about artwork and we went and visited a school for my daughter and there was nobody, brown, black, on any of the walls. And you think, how can this be a supportive environment for my child if they don't see themselves anywhere? And so why do we want to be at the table? Do you want to be at the table? That table? I would say because, first of all, our blood is in the soil that the table stands on. Mm -hmm. And then I would say that we help to build the table. Mm -hmm. And then I would say that we have a voice at the table of humanity, just like anyone else, because we get discounted or dehumanized because of our blackness, and yet we are human beings just like anyone else. So that's not why I want to be at the table, but that's why I deserve to be at the table and I have a right to be at the table. When I say I, I don't mean me personally, mm -hmm. I'm saying I as a people. Right. So is it possible though that we could sit at our own table and still be valued? We, we need to because there's more than one table in the house and it's okay for Black mm -hmm. folks to sit around the table amongst Black folks. You know, now we call them affinity groups and affinity circles. And, but it, it's nothing wrong with that. It's not about anti-anyone else. It's a constructive thing. It's not destructive. So right. whether it's women, women talk amongst women. White people can talk amongst white people. Black people and Latinx and Asians and Christians can talk amongst Christians. I mean, this goes across every identity. There's nothing wrong with people having their own table within the house, but yet within the house, there is that one dinner table where everybody comes, or should be, that where everybody comes to collect and gather. And that's that table of humanity that I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. Just from a personal standpoint, you know, I, you know, we have this notion of Evanston, Evanston. Okay, so I've worked and lived in 23 countries, right? I spent seven years living around the world and Evanston stands out. I would not deny that. <clears throat> I'm proud of it. I love Evanston. I, I traveled overseas and came back to reside here. I'm, I embrace that. I'm a fifth generation Evanstonian, all of that. But at the same time, we have this, what's to many people, this invisible racism and classism that happens here in Evanston and this intersectionality between those. So I'll just use myself as an example that I was born in community hospital. Why was I born there? Well, that's where the black folks were born. So, right, a lot of my people in Evanston, particularly whites, may not see that when they see me. But so when you say a lot of your people in Evanston, and particularly white people, don't see it, it's because they haven't had to. It's because I believe that many assume that their experience is your experience, right? So they don't ever have to understand that there are other facets to growing up as a black person anywhere. 
And Evanstonians think that it's universal, but it's not. So when we speak to Evanston specifically, Community Hospital was founded in 1920 by Isabella Garnett and her husband, Arthur Butler, both doctors. Right. They hired uh, Dr. Hill, Elizabeth Webb Hill, who became one of the first black chiefs of staff at a hospital. And Dr. Hill, a, a woman, mind you, a black woman, and she delivered my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, and myself into the world, the same doctor. <clears throat> Although there were some black people in Evanston, born at Evanston Hospital or St. Francis Hospital during that time, most black people were born at Community Hospital because of institutional racism. And we have to remember, because it seems a whole lot of people want to forget that during many of those years, Jim Crow was alive and thriving in Evanston. That, that's what Evanston looks like. It's hidden. So the fact that I was born in a community hospital, the fact that a disproportionate number of Black people at Evanston live in the Fifth Ward, this, you know, the fact that the Fifth Ward is the only community in Evanston that does not have a community school is a, re is a result of this invisible racism that I'm talking about. The Evanston YMCA, we used to have the Emerson Street YMCA on Emerson, that's where Blacks were allowed to go. That's been dismantled. We lost community hospital. Through integration, we lost our Black business district on Church and Dine. My grandfather used to often talk about the, the, the negative impact of integration. We always look at the mm. positive aspects because there are lots of positives. And I used to argue with my grandfather until I grew mature to learn what he was talking about. And there was a cost that we paid due to integration. So integration largely has happened on our backs I was raised in the second war. My family was one of the first to integrate that community. It was predominantly white. And from the time we moved in to about 15 years later, it went from all white to all black. And now it's in the process of going back to predominantly white. But that's this is the invisible aspect of like racism here in Evanston. Schools are integrated largely on the backs of black and brown children because they're bused into these schools to integrate these other schools. So here we go. We are going into a second year of a pandemic. Mm. Not just one pandemic, but another that becomes more and more elevated as well. And that is the opportunities or lack thereof for black folks. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't opportunities, but things are tougher for many who are already in a tough position. You come from a family that has offered support and you in turn offer support, a, a sense of well-being and strength. What do you say for those who don't have that? I think the irony is that for those who do not have that, who feel they don't, the irony is that they are not alone because so many people are feeling just that and going through that. So hence, it, it's incumbent upon that individual to somehow reach beyond themselves and to try to tap into being able to be vulnerable, to reach out and to ask for help and to be in touch with other people and to connect with it. So we have to do things that we're not comfortable doing and do things in a different way and, and reach out to people that maybe we wouldn't have in the past. We got to get beyond our own kind of like comfort zone, but also our own suffering and, and, and be uncomfortable and reach out and be vulnerable and show our humanity. Because when we can give, other people can connect with that. 
And hopefully through that, we can connect together and help each other get through this time. Because you're right, because a lot of people don't have that. But there's, there's no easy answer. But we do not have to do it alone. But we have to reach out and realize that we're not alone in this. You have to be comfortable reaching out, huh? Uh, no, because you have to be uncomfortable. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Survival is not comfortable. Yeah, I guess my question is, and I'm agreeing with you, first of all, right? But leaning into being uncomfortable for growth, when being comfortable is the, the easiest thing. Um, how do we get those that are comfortable to be that risk taker and say, it's okay to be uncomfortable because that's where the growth happens. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that they, they need to see an example of that. Yes. Right. Other people who have done that, other people who live by that. And that's the importance of what you all are doing with Evanston Rules. And that is helping people to connect to one another's stories. And storytelling is the oldest art form. And unfortunately, you know, we, who are raised here in the Western world, we're not taught to appreciate that and to value that, not only in one another, but to value our own stories. So hence we often don't tell them and the stories get lost and we're lost in that process. So we need to connect to each other, but we need to tell stories. And, and, and that's not even telling our story and, and of our trauma, our pain, our suffering. That may not be a comfortable thing either, but if we can see that other people have done it and that they're living by it, if people can see the value in that, I think that can hopefully propel them or inspire them to be able to try to do that, to tell their story, to reach out. So uh, we talked a little bit about being your father's son and how magical and wonderful that is. You were raised in Evanston as a, as a black boy. Yeah. And I want to hear a little bit more about that experience, but I want you to also talk about what it was like raising your sons in Evanston and how different or how parallel those experiences were. So growing up a black boy in Evanston, so for myself, I grew up in, in the black community in black in, in Evanston. My, my dentist was black, the doctor was black, the, the, the plumber, the carpenter, the landscaper, our attorney, all of our physicians. I mean, it, it was all black people. I went to Miss Marshall's nursery school. That's another factor in race because that was a hundred percent all black. I went to Miss Marshall's nursery school. That's another factor in race because that was a hundred percent all black. Hundred percent all black. All I knew, black. I, I knew her as Miss Robinson. But if we're not aware of race in Evanston, we just see these things to be normal because racism is normalized. Then I went to Washington Elementary School. Went to Chute Middle School. I had a principal as a black man, Mr. Pate. Had another black man as an assistant principal, Mr. Ruff. Had another black man as an assistant principal, uh, Mr. Phillips. I had a black science teacher. I had two black math teachers. One was a male, one was female. I had th three, uh, two black social studies teachers. I had so many black men in my life just in the institution at school when I was growing up. When I was getting my, working on my doctoral dissertation, my dissertation chair, Dr. C, she coined this term self-ethnic reflectors, self-ethnic reflectors. And that is being able to see your ethnic group reflected in your environment and the role that plays in developing your identity. Where I had a lot of that growing up here in Evanston. I saw that at Jude School, for example. 
so I, so I grew up in the black experience and yet, yet we grew up in, in a predominantly white Evanston, right? So there's that dichotomy of being both African and American of being black living in the white world. And for me, you know, that was a difficult thing to navigate because <clears throat> we grew up in Evanston thinking we understand who we are as black people. But then once we leave the parameters of Evanston, as a young black boy trying to be a young black man, we're faced with the reality of a race and racism is in our society, separate from what it means to be raised and living here in Evanston. And so, you know, so for me, there's a veil that was removed by living out of Evanston, going to college, stepping outside of the comfort zone of what it means to be a black Evanstonian. And at the same time, we were, um, I, I was, I, I say I survived white privilege as a black boy. But mm -hmm. that comfort, it's temporary. And I think that that privilege isn't always privileged because it's not always true. We still face the same issues when it comes down to it of understanding and whether or not the, the, the kumbaya and the mix goes real deep. Because I believe that we probably understand the white culture far more than they really understand ours besides Earth, Wind, sure. and Fire and... Um, some Commodores. other and what else? Commodores. And the Commodores. Mm -hmm. but, but you know, that can maybe be thought of as a joke, but honestly, I don't know that it really is. And I think that those are the things that hurt us when we leave, because when we come back, you know, we we've it, we've seen things that allow us really to understand our blackness in a different way. You know, as many people say, you go home, but you can't go home as you were. Mm-hmm. And when you come back with your knowledge, what happens to the relationships that you felt comfortable in with people of other races? Right. It's different. It, 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 it's not the same because it, it, it's the same, but we're not because we realize that what we thought wasn't here always was. And that, like, I think to your point, that level of race and racism that exists here in Evanston. I do disagree with the privilege, though, because like myself, I grew up middle-class family, that's a privilege. I grew up with both parents at home, that's a privilege. I went to school safe, that, that was a privilege. I had food on the table every day, that's a privilege. So I think there's certain privileges that black folks in Evanston have that a lot of our brothers and sisters don't have in other places that we take for granted. Not only long race and racism, but just basic socioeconomic privileges um, that we have that I think a lot of other people don't. But to your point, yeah, we go, we come back, and it's different. So we look at Evanston different. We look at our relationships with white people different. We look at our relationships with, with black folks different. And it's a different reality because we have a different awakening now to what has always been here. I feel the issues in society are all at a microcosm here in Evanston. We just didn't see it growing up. So some okay. of us didn't. Well, <laughs> right. You said you survived white privilege. Explain that. I say that in twofold. One, because to Larissa's point, you know, most of us Black folks in Evanston know how to navigate the white world in ways white folks have no sense of how to navigate the Black world, right? And that's because of our ability to adjust, to adapt, to learn, to accommodate, to code switch, like all those survival mechanisms that we had, that we developed growing up in Evanston, gives us an ability when we go out into the world to navigate and interact with all kind of people. But at the same time, a lot of the white people, they knew, like you said, the Commodores, okay, Earth, Wind and Fire, 
but beyond that, like what did they really know of the black and brown experience? Not what did they read and hear, what did they experience and what did they really know? So the white privilege that I survived was almost losing my identity as a black boy. What it means to be a black boy growing up in Evanston, thinking it's kumbaya and we're all the same and, and oblivious to the realities of race and racism right here in Evanston. So I, I struggled with my identity as a young black boy. And then the other part of it was, it was through my experience and my exposure to my white friends, that was my exposure to, to drugs and alcohol. You know, so while black folks are drinking some Boone's Farm, you know, white folks are drinking cage, you know, and black folks are, I, mean, I don't know how far we can take this in a podcast, but black folks are doing certain drugs that have certain exposure and white folks are at a whole different level of Who access. Who those drugs into the black community? Well, that's what I'm saying. So for me, my exposure was through my relationships with white people. So my identity and through that experience with partying and drugs and alcohol, through both of those measures, I almost lost myself. In, in ways that I didn't realize until I had left and was able to reflect back on my experience growing up here. Yeah, it just, it just, it, it really resonated with me, surviving white privilege. And, you know, I hate to say it this way, but I'm gonna say it this way. I kind of appreciate that I wasn't able to lose myself in whiteness because I understood that access wasn't really access. I understood that that so-called privilege wasn't absolutely privilege because I understood when and where I would be treated differently. I, I learned that in Evanston, yeah. but, like, but I'm speaking to like, you know, when I was in elementary school, when I was, was oblivious to those things, I mean, there was a certain point where I was oblivious to things that I became aware of while I was growing up in Evanston. 100%. You know, I think in some ways, I thought that I was lucky to be able to be in all these different things. But as I've gotten older, the idea of code switching, it just pisses me off. Doesn't it, though? It just pisses me off. They don't I, have to do that. But I got to ask a question. What about the Negroes in Evanston that have just fallen so in love with the white experience that they have lost their damn mind? Yeah, there's, there's quite a few of us. Quite a few. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> what about them? I mean, it, it's real. That, that happens. That's the reality in Evanston, unfortunately. I'm so sick of hearing soul has no color. When, when I begin to look at do people even really have souls? Are they really people? I mean, Not have they lost their humanity? Have they lost? If you don't have humanity, why the heck am I going to try to save you? Right. By calling you my brother or my sister. So what does it mean to be black? Like, if that's defined by white folks in the white experience, then that's that's a problem. And, 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 grow, and growing up in Evanston, that happens. And we give them the power to define us. So hence, that's a privilege they have that we don't. And we get lost in that white privilege. And we get lost in that white world. Right. Because of our proximity to it. Man, church. <laughs> Spirituality. So I, there are a couple things I want to get back to. Ground us, Larisse. Go ahead and ground us. Black bodies, bringing black bodies into spaces. There's all this talk about DEI, talking about bringing black people in. But I think we've all realized that bringing black bodies in does not equal black consciousness. It doesn't right. mean that things change because things change to stay the same. It's not just about bringing one body or two bodies or three bodies. It's about changing the systemic racism and experience right. that we've all had. Right. 
tell me more about your feelings about what we're doing in our actions, because this is obviously where you live. Yeah. How do we really make change? You know, Ronnie says, there is no equity without action. What are the actionable steps? What are the actionable ways that we need to live that can actually take us to another place instead of us coasting along and having this conversation in 10 more years? Hmm. Yes, I think the path is different for different people, depending on their on their own racial identity, their own developmental level, their own race and et cetera. Um, Wow. Um, you, you know, well, just one of the things that came to mind when you posed that question is that, so I, I'm, I'm developing this project called the RID Racism Project, right? And, and RID is, it's a play on the word rich, like get rid of racism, to rid ourselves of it, to kind of excavate it, to exercise it. But also RID is an acronym for racial identity development. And I think that's something when I hear all this racial justice and racial equity and anti-racism and we hear about, you know, systemic racism and microaggressions and implicit bias and all these things. But I'm not hearing like racial identity development. And to me, that's a central element to this whole thing. I, I think that's the starting point for us is to to understand who we are, because we can't change the systems, the world, our societies, the businesses we work in, our families, our communities. We have to do the work of looking in the mirror first and foremost. And I think too many people are bypassing that in, in the sense of not the ism, the sickness is within us. So even though it is systemic, but it's people who are perpetuating that system. So we need we need to excavate it within our like we need to get rid of the cancer within first, just, just like on the airline, right? It, what the, the, the flight attendant says, what, right? Put on your own mask first before you even say try to save your own child. So we, you know, we want to talk about changing our society and systemic racism, and we have to do the work within it. To me, as far as reading of racism, we have to look at our own racial identity, development, and the process through which we develop that identity. What is that? Because for too many of us, that identity is detrimental. Too many of us, for white, brown, for black folks, of us, it's negative, and we need to explore how that came about, what's the impact of that, how that informs our practice, how that shows up in our management style, our interpersonal communication style, in terms of how we view resumes. And, and so I think that's one part of where the work begins. And just real quickly, I think what's happening is we're having two different conversations. Black and brown people are speaking about racism from the systemic aspect of it and how we see the system of it. And I think too many white people are looking at it from an individual standpoint by saying, well, look, I'm not racist. You, okay, so they're looking at it individually, but that's the American value, value is rugged individualism. So they're taught to look at it individually, but we're looking at it systemically. We, we have to look at it systemically because that's the reality that, that, that we deal with, right? I, I think part of the get rid of racism piece is a focus, as you said, on us without justification from white folk. And that's okay. What we need to do is fix us. Right. And as you said, until we put our own masks on. So two things. You answered the first part of Ronnie's question. You answered you as a as a black son growing up, losing your identity or almost losing your identity. What's it like for you on the other side, raising your sons? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
it's an honor and it's a massive responsibility. It's an honor because I see I'm just perpetuating what's been perpetuated before me, this long line and lineage of, of black folks and black people and black men and our black males in our families. So now it's my turn to do what my father was doing for me, what his father did for him and so on and so forth. So I see the broader honor of that and the broader, the massive responsibility. So for me, like right off the bat, you know, we were having quote unquote the talks from the very beginning. So raising my sons, um, they, I, I my, my whole thing is I exposed them to it at home first before they experienced it out in society. So they just, we talked about race and racism and different races and a lot of these things, you know, I mean, my, my, my boys were in elementary school. We drove down to Money, Mississippi. We, we saw the remnants of where Emmett Till in that, in that uh, corner store, like where that happened. We went to the Tallahassee River. You know, we, we saw the Bryant's home where they went. Like they were in elementary school. And some people felt that they were too young to be exposed to that. And I'm like, this is the truth. This is the reality. And it's not just exposing them to that, but it's how you expose that and how you educate them. So I, I always believed in exposure and preparing them, the preparation for what they're gonna be faced with in society. And that's what I mean by the massive responsibility because they've been experiencing race and racism throughout their lives. And it's interesting because I see their experience, like, like I had two sons in college now and we're talking about the same things that I was experiencing back when I was in college. And what they just left in Evanston was some of the same things I was experiencing in Evanston. So we're able to have kind of like parallel conversations, but also respecting and understanding that it is different. This is an entirely different generation than what I grew up in. It's a different time and a different age. But between the two of those worlds, you know, just take embracing that responsibility to expose them, to educate them, and to prepare them and to ground them in their own sense of identity as Evanstonians, as, as African-American, as men, as human beings. Speaking of men and human beings, you talked about being a feminist. Some people think you only can be a woman and being, be a feminist, but that's not so. The idea of the feminine, you talked about how you discovered that. What does that mean? Well, let me clarify first that I, I consider myself a womanist, not a feminist. There you go. Um, and, you know, I mean, we don't have time to get into that whole piece, well, but there's a whole lot about it. And there's a whole lot yeah. of issues with, with feminism and womanism and that feminism has been primarily a white female right. Right. movement. Whereas right. being a womanist has been far more inclusive. So exactly. thank you for that. Yeah, so for, for me, my exposure to that was, my, my healing of that was when I was overseas, particularly immersed with indigenous people of color and my experience with women and the role that they played in the home, in the village, in, in the shops, in the community and how central they were. And I saw that it was part of our tradition and our culture that was the, the dominant role that black women have. And no, it's not because of slavery. It's not because of our culture is backwards here in America that, that black women have such a prominent role. No, 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 this was actually how we got to this point in history, right? So me being exposed to that beyond Evanston helped me to see, helped to cultivate that part of my identity that as a, as a jock in Evanston, as a black boy in Evanston in America, I had a certain perspective of girls and women, girls and females as opposed to them being women. 
And it was my experience, my proximity to indigenous people of culture, particularly in their villages and in their communities and the prominent role that women played. I, I saw that those women are the perpetuators of the culture. So hence they perpetuated and, and cultivated part of a culture within me that I did not have fully developed here in America in, in living in a white society and in a white country. And, and my own humanity, my sense of compassion and empathy. And it was those experiences in the village with women and children that led me into education, elementary education. We won't, as a society of humans, be where we need to be on the evolutionary spectrum until we understand the importance that women have led prior to Indo-Europeans right. in existing on this earth. The black population is down in Evanston, which seems to be really interesting at a time where they're bringing in all the black educators, but there are fewer black children. You know, uh, Larice, part of, in some of the talks that I do, that's one of the points that I always hone in on. But between the last two census, the, Evanston was depopulated by over 8,000 black people in a 10 year period, over 8,000 depopulated. So, uh, I mean, there's a variety of factors, but for many, we just couldn't afford to live here, right? So we would do what? Go right on the other side of McCormick and try to still send our kids to the Evanston schools or go right to the other side of Howard, like staying as close as we can to Evanston because we love it, but we couldn't afford it. You know what I mean? So a fair amount of that was happening that was also discouraging to some black people. And I'm talking about prior to the housing crisis in 2008, Black people getting priced out of Evanston and gentrification is taking its toll. That's one of the key factors. And I see that happening. I, I see it because these, these are my peers. I see it. We talked about the Fifth Ward, about how there's no school there. How for all these years, all these years, have we not been able to get a school built for the Fifth Ward? And, and I posit that by the time we get the school in the Fifth Ward, the black community will have been decimated. Yeah, so there's going to be a school, but it's going to be a it's going to be a school the neighborhood, right. and it's going to be for the white kids, and it's going to be 60, 40, 70, 30 split, like it always has been. But what are your ideas about the Fifth Ward School, man? My my short answer is it, it needs to happen. It's going to happen. It's a question of when it happens, what it looks like when it happens, what the what the demographics of the Fifth Ward looks like when it happens, and I think it needs to be culturally relevant and it needs to be STEM-based. That's my short answer. How do we make it happen? How do we make it happen? Well, I'm on the education subcommittee for it right now. So that's one way we're trying to make it happen behind the scenes. I mean, it's part of the reparations piece, but it's at a grassroots level. That, that's where it's gonna happen. And, and the pieces have to align. And there's a lot of pieces in our community that need alignment. But we, you know, what we're pushing for now, our ancestors have pushed for this and some more in the past. We need to pull on that energy and be resilient and keep keep this at a grassroots level and keep informing people of what, what needs to happen and how. And, and, but we do it together. Again, we got to come together to make this happen. It takes resources, but we need to, we, it's accountability. You know, Ron talked about no equity without action. There's no equity without accountability. So we need to hold our partners and our people and our community and our city accountable in getting the school built in the fifth ward. Absolutely. Who influenced you? I can surely point to Bob Marley, Lucky Dubé, uh, Nelson Mandela, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, 
uh, Thomas Sankara, Patrice Lumumba, Kwame Nkrumah, Holly Selassie, my mom, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, Jinky, my grandfather, grandpa. Uh, I mean, there's patriarchs and matriarchs on both sides of my family that have inspired me. Um, and, and at the same time, just the everyday people in my community. I mean, I can, Oliver Ruff, Mr. Pate, I mean, I can go Rose Johnson, I can, you know, Aunt Helen. I mean, I can, I, there's a lot of people. I am because we are, and because we are, <clears throat> therefore I am. So whatever I'm bringing or whatever I have, whatever I give, it's just a mere reflection of what's been given to me and whose shoulders I stand upon. So, I mean, I can name a number of people, but most directly impactful was my father. I mean, he's had by far the greatest impact on my life. And I think if I can just say that he's impacted me in ways that some people may not, you know, consider. So surely Chief Logan and all that package, right? I, I get that. You know, I had privileges being the chief son. Okay, I got pulled over for, you know, not stopping at the stop sign. They saw Chief Logan's son. Sure, I mean, I, I get that happened. But there were also pressures. <laughs> a whole lot of pressures that came with being Chief Logan's son. And again, the pressures that played into my issues with identity. But I just want to say that, for example, when I was in sixth grade, you know, I didn't make the sixth grade all-star team at the Y. And I went to the game thinking I was on the all-star game. And I, I went there to find out I wasn't on the team and I came home crying and crushed. It was my father who was the one who grabbed me and said, son, we, we love you for who you are, whether mm. if, you make, if you make the team or not. Remember that. Like, those are the little things I want to point, separate from Chief Logan and all the accolades. But I just want to speak to dad for a moment. He was the one that picked me up every day, dropped me off every day from football practice, basketball practice. He was my fam coach. He was all as busy as he was and all that he did. And he was the one that taught me how to tie my shoes. I can remember sitting on my front porch and him repeatedly showing me how to tie my shoes, how to cut the grass, how to bathe myself as a young man. Like he taught me those things. He was the one that when I came back from overseas and I said, you know what? I don't want to do the corporate world. I don't know what I want to do. He was the one, just like his father suggested to him, when he was on the picket line and he was like, the hell with this, I need to find another job. And his father suggested being a police officer. Well, it was my father that suggested I go into education. You know, he was the one that suggested I go to get my master's at National Lewis. He was my main support in getting my doctoral degree. So my dad, in those ways, both practically, emotionally, and in a variety of ways, I mean, his, his life and his legacy, his name for sure, that's a lot that I, I, I try to give because I've been given a lot by a lot of people. Keep the I want to thank everybody for joining us today and coming along on this journey and that you'll follow along with us as we continue to air a new podcast. You can find us at evansonrules.com. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we look forward to hearing from you. Move up. Move up.